things is going to be critical to flattening that curve is the ability to isolate as many prisoners who get sick so it doesn't spread. Uh, and it's just not possible to do that. If you believe we can change the narrative, if you believe we can change our communities, if you believe we can change the outcomes, then we can change the world. I'm Rob Richardson. Welcome to Disruption Now. Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm your host and moderator, Rob Richardson. On the show, we've been focusing a lot on the coronavirus, COVID-19, and the responses in so many ways. We've talked about it from the small business point of view. You've heard me go off politically on some parts I didn't like. You've heard me talk, uh, we're gonna have a, a show coming out. Actually, this is taped now. We are uh, April 2nd. We have a show coming out April 3rd uh, that will discuss how some of it actually can help small businesses and nonprofits, part of the Corona stimulus package that actually came out. But what I haven't discussed and what I don't think is being discussed enough is how the coronavirus is impacting those most vulnerable in our society, particularly those that are incarcerated, those who don't have uh, as much means. What this, what this, what this is doing to them, uh, it's, it's. I think um, the coronavirus has at least let everyone know no matter who you are or where you're at or where you're from, how much money you have, where you are, uh, you can and are susceptible to this. Uh, but but if we're not careful, we, we, we might forget what I think is one of the most important lessons in that when we ignore the most vulnerable, when, when we ignore those who are suffering the most, uh, who are the most disadvantaged, uh, we also put ourselves at risk. It's a it's the right thing to do to help those who are who are who are who are struggling. But also, I think in the world we live in right now, what the coronavirus uh, has taught us, I think, and at least it's taught me, is that we're all vulnerable if we ignore what is going on with people in their most vulnerable states. So with me is uh, David Singleton, a, a really good friend of mine, and I am an admirer of, uh, admirer of his work. He's, ho he's heard me uh, say that many, many times. I admire uh, what you do. He is the head of the Ohio Justice and Policy Center. And uh, I like to say, David, you were into criminal justice reform before it was a sexy thing, when it was still <laughs> controversial, when people were looking at you crazy, Lots of people, when you went from a very lucrative career as a as a private attorney to saying, you know, I want to go out and represent people who are in prison, and people are like, what are you thinking? I'm sure some people said that to you during that time, and um, did it because you believed in it, and um, still not easy work. I'd say it's a little it's a little easier in terms that more people uh, are aware and eyes are open to how much we really need to change our criminal justice system, but. Uh, in a crisis, we have an opportunity to either get better as a nation or go backwards. And I think, you know, depending on how we treat our most vulnerable is how we're going to go and move forward and figure out how we can not only prevent uh, a, a crisis or a pandemic like this happening again, uh, but make sure it actually stops. So uh, I'd like to talk to you about, you know, in terms of your work, and we're going to get a little into your work and, and other things you've done, but let's just kind of start off with the moment about the coronavirus. And if you were talking to people, the average person now knows about the coronavirus, they're aware of it, it's hard not to be unless you just don't wanna pay attention to anything on earth. And we're saying, well, we need to pay attention to people that are incarcerated right now, people who have committed crimes. People, Some people might be saying, well, why does that matter? Those people chose to make a bad decision. Why should I worry about them in a time like this? What would you say to people when they have that type of question? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Rob, and thanks for the kind words. And what I would say to 
a person who would say, why should we care about prisoners um, who are at risk of contracting the coronavirus? Here's what I'd say to that. First of all, and this is just a moral starting point for me, is we are talking about human beings. We are talking about living, breathing human beings who are somebody's son or daughter, father, mother, brother, sister, um, friend, member of the community, and we should care for that reason. But here, if you're not with me on that moral reason, here's why you ought to care. Most prisoners in Ohio are displaced from urban areas to rural communities where prisons exist. And there are um, people, corrections officers, staff who have to work in prisons. Once COVID-19 begins to infect Ohio prisoners, if it hasn't already, those prisons are going to be vectors of disease, vectors of infe infection, and COVID-19 is going to spread throughout the prison system. It's not only, only going to impact and infect directly prisoners, but also staff, corrections officers, um, the social workers who work in, in, in uh, the prisons, the medical staff. So that's number one. Number two, what's going to happen is there is already a sh shortage of ICU beds in rural communities. And while there is a limited number of beds available in, at OSU to treat the, sick, the sickest of prisoners who need really advanced care, that's not a lot of beds either. So we're talking about um, infections that are gonna hit rural communities really hard. Not only are you gonna have prisoners who are gonna need to be treated, but staff members who are coming into contact with prisoners and who are, who are gonna be spreading it to their families. And so we should care. We need to get out in front of, of, of stopping the spread of coronavirus in, in the prison system because it's gonna impact the health of the entire community. Amen to that. And uh, so many points you made there that I wanna hit on. The uh, humanity point, I think the language is important about how we talk about those who are in the criminal justice system for so many different reasons. And I'm gonna to get to that in a minute. But what I really want to talk about is the fact that, you know, so people understand directly, I, I, I wish people aspired and, and, and understood it from a point of view of morality at the beginning. Uh, we have a lot of evidence that's not the case. Uh, however, in, 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 a moment, in a moment that we have right now, where people can see how connected we really are, like it doesn't matter how much money you have if you get the coronavirus, it really doesn't. And, and no amount of money at some point, if you need to go to the hospital, maybe some amount, but eventually, even at some point, it doesn't matter if the system's overwhelmed, the system's overwhelmed, we are in this together. Uh, a favorite, one of my favorite lines from Dr. Martin Luther King that I think people don't fully appreciate is he, when he talks about a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. The whole context of that speech, though, is about us being tied together as one and that you, if you try to ignore something that's happening to another community because you just think that community is not important, uh, then it ends up affecting you too, and I, and I, and and the coronavirus is a is a is a good, is a good example of that. I mean, this started in a remote part of Wuhan, China, and it has infected the whole world. So if you think ignoring people can work, 
in our global world, it just doesn't. And so to your point, in prison, we're telling everybody now to social distance. We have overcrowded prisons. We have people in prison that shouldn't be in prison, and we're telling them to social distance, and it's not possible in the current environment. So what practically needs to be done as you, if you're, you know, David Singleton, you are governor of Ohio right now, because these, these are mostly, we'll say you're governor, and then maybe you could be president next. You're governor right now. Don't right? put that on me. <laughs> hey, we need good people there. I'm just saying. Uh, governor DeWine, who I think honestly has done a good job because uh, he's he's followed the evidence and not the politics, uh, but he can really lead on this too. So what would you tell him? What would you tell him to do right now with our with, with the current prison population that's going on right now? What what steps can we practically take? I would say to Governor DeWine, find a way to release at least ten thousand people right now, um, and. We have a system, Ohio prison system, that's designed for 37,500, I believe. We've got close to 50,000 people incarcerated right now. Uh, we've got a little under 50. And one of the things that's going to be critical to flattening that curve and stopping coronavirus from, from devastating the prison population and the staff who work there is the ability to isolate as many prisoners who get sick so it doesn't spread. Uh, and it's just not possible to do that when you're overcrowded, not possible at all. Um, a lot of the prisoners who are lower security, like minimum security, they live in dormitories where you may have several hundred people in a large space living three feet apart. There's no way you can practice the physical distance or the social distance in that kind of setting. So the prison system needs to downsize as quickly as possible so that uh, the, the, the spread of infection is not as severe um, as, it, as it will be without reducing the population. That's really, that's critical. That's the number one thing I would do. Yeah, I mean, I, and, and you make such a great point. And, you know, I, I should have thought about it, but I didn't think about it from the fact that, you know, you're not just you're not talking about just just affecting African-Americans, people of color, uh, people that live in urban communities. And when you talk about uh, trying to protect people from the spread who are within the criminal justice system, uh, you make such a great point. Most of most prison systems are located in rural communities that. And it's often a lot of lot of jobs that are there that are tied there. So you're talking about a lot of people that, first of all, that are not in that are, that are not that are not in prison, but are working in the prison system that will take it back, bring it back, and continue to infect uh, their family, their friends. And then, as you said, it will add to more people that are uh, that have to go to the hospitals because that because that's the real thing, right? We we've discussed this on the show again, but I think it bears repeating um, why this is different from the flu. I hope people know that by now, but let's keep making sure we educate people over and over and over again. This is way more contagious than the flu. It is harder to contain. And the issue is that so many people can can uh, go into our hospital system at once that you can't treat people, not only for corona, you can't treat people to have any other illness or have a, have it, or have a baby or a thing like that. So you're going to have a, a way where you can't treat people, you can't treat enough people and you're overwhelming them. So everything we... 
we can do, we should be doing, and we have people, David, in prison that you know not only are low level, but then I'm sure there are people. You could talk about this a little bit from Ohio's point of view. There are people who are also in the system who are still awaiting trial, who are there for you know because they can't they can't actually afford bail. So you're not talking about people that have been formally charged. I'm not formally charged, not formally convicted, I should say that are caught up in a system, they haven't even had trial, but they, we have a system that says you go to jail first. Talk about what it means for those people and you know, just from a moral point of view, how it's such a bad policy, but how this moment, perhaps we can do something about that as well. Yeah, I do want to say something about the jails and, and just let, if you'll just indulge sure. me for one moment, I want to go ahead. say Take one time. thing about the prison population, because I think a lot of the talk often is about, let's find ways to decarcerate, meaning to, to reduce the prison population by uh, by not incarcerating people who have committed low-level, non-violent offenses. I think that's dangerous to, 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 to use that kind of language because there are plenty of folks in our state prison system who are minimum security now uh, and have committed serious crimes and have been and have been incarcerated for decades. They paid more, you know, they more than paid for their right, crime, right. and they should be able to get released too, particularly if they um, are especially vulnerable, meaning that they're um, 60 years of old or age of older, or they have a chronic oh, condition like asthma or diabetes. We shouldn't say no to releasing those individuals just because their crime of conviction 20 years ago, 30 years ago, was murder. To the jails, a lot of good stuff has been happening in counties across the state, particularly in the large urban county counties like uh, Hamilton County, like Cuyahoga County. For instance, in Hamilton County, before the uh, COVID crisis uh, hit, we had about 1,200 people at the uh, Hamilton County Justice Center. And now, thanks in large part to the work of the Hamilton County Public Defender Office, uh, we have a, a little over 800 people. And the significance of that uh, is that having 800 people at the jail, all 800 of those folks are in single cells right now. So if anyone were to get uh, infected uh, from the jail population, they could be isolated and not spread it to uh, uh, other, other um, uh, people uh, that they'd be sharing a cell with. So that's really important. And Cuyahoga County has reduced its jail population. I believe that's happened in the in the other major counties. What I'm less clear about is what's happening in the rural jails um, across the state. And your and your point about if you are in jail and you haven't you're not serving like a misdemeanor sentence in jail, but you're waiting trial either on a misdemeanor or a felony. You haven't even been convicted yet. You're presumed innocent. And so many folks who are in jail are in jail because they can't afford to pay money bail. They're poor. And the whole point of money bail is to, or the whole point of bail is to make sure you're going to come back to court. And there are non-financial ways that we can ensure people are going to come back to court. And at least one of the good things that's, that's happened, um, our local court, our local felony court, common police court did, was it said it authorized the sheriff to release Anyone who was uh, in jail, awaiting trial, held on a money bond that they couldn't 
make. Um, there's some exceptions to that rule, but it allowed a vast number of these folks to, to be released recently. And that's a good step in the, in the right direction. No, that's great. And uh, to your point about the humanity of those who find themselves in the, in the criminal justice system, um, more people find themselves there than they think. And it's, and it's, a, um, it's a path that no one expects, but uh, you know, it's, it happens to a lot of people, particularly those who have the um, who end up who end up using drugs or, and have that as a as an addiction. Uh, tell talk about how you approach the conversation of humanity with people um, and why it's so important. I mean, I, I have some. I mean, I I know, but I think it's important for the listeners to understand why it's important. We understand that a these people are human, and and, and b. How do we go about changing the language and changing the perspective of those who understand that this is people should not be judged by their lowest moment in life? People absolutely should not be judged by their lowest moment in life. And, you know, you and I, Rob, we can we can say those words all we want, but it's just not as powerful as people hearing from individuals who have served time in prison, come home succeeded in them telling their own stories about their humanity. Yeah. One of the things that we started uh, almost a year ago was a new project called Beyond Guilt. And the whole point of that project is to work to free people who are locked up in state prisons, who admit guilt to a serious crime, who have served a significant sentence and who can demonstrate rehabilitation. And we've been able in um, a little less than a year to gain the release of people who have committed very serious crimes, including three of our clients were convicted of murder and had not even seen the parole board yet. They still had years to go, but we worked with local prosecutors, um, to take another look at the case. And in each of those cases, the, the folks convicted of murder, uh, we were able to get back to court uh, and the client pled to, to manslaughter, got out immediately and started rebuilding her life. Angelo Robinson's a great example of, of this. Angelo is now, uh, he spent tw uh, 22 years locked up, um, still had a ways to go before he was gonna see the parole board. He got, came home last August. He's got a great job at Meyer Tool. Uh, he is going to Cincinnati State. They're putting him through, through college. He is making a difference. And when people meet Angelo, they see his humanity. They right. say, we're locking too many people up. We need to look at folks like Angelo as, pe as people who can succeed and make a difference in the community. So the short answer is, is my approach more now is not so much me saying it, right? But introducing people to people to folks like Angela Robinson, Michelle right. Robinson, uh, and others. Obviously, obviously, Tyra, who's been a, a, who's part of a, the Ohio Justice Policy Center, we've had her on before. Right. Uh, I, uh, Lewis Reed, you know him. Uh, he does some work with Van Jones Group. I think he has a he has a great story. He made he he, he did very well for himself after. Being convicted of a serious crime, I mean, he was, he was trying to shoot somebody else and ended up shooting a four-year-old girl, and she didn't die. But still, I mean, and he's and he's and he's and he served his time, 
and he's done very well. But all these people are human. And then, and then there, are, there are people all in between, too, I think. Because I think it's a both and. You're, you're right to not just say, uh, you know, those who, who are, did non-serious offenses. But even those with non-serious offenses are still a lot of people in jail. We're still we're, – we, I think we in this country, I, I think we're going towards the right direction. But we need a vast amount. Uh, you know, um, Land Jones Group cut 50. Uh, they, they, they have the stat that even if we cut – uh, the those in prison by 50%, we'd still be leading the world in those in prison. Yeah. Just to tell you how severe the problem is. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. And it, and it would be great if we could cut the prison U.S. prison population in half. That would be wonderful. But we would still be a leader in, in the leader in incarcerating people. And that's just, that says that something's not right in the United States. And it's not that we have uh, people who are, you know, worse human beings, if you want to use that phrase. I don't even like to use that kind of talk, but it's not that we're any worse than, in terms of people, in term, uh, than the rest of the, co- the world. It's that we have d- a different set of policies uh, in place in terms of how we use the criminal legal system. And too many people are locked up too, for too long, even when they commit serious crimes. Yeah, I mean, it's been, a, it's been the approach that the way to fight crime and the most effective way to fight crime is to lock people up for as long as possible. But I believe what the studies have shown is that actually can make crime worse because people know they're going to go to jail for something no matter what level. They, they'll just they'll just have no regard for the law at some point. And so that doesn't do a lot of good. I mean, you're, you're uh, convincing people. You guys, we, We've done some work. Like It's been amazing to see even the First Step Act pass. It's beginning. wasn't everything, but it was, but it was a beginning. It was passed with a lot of uh, folks who normally do not support criminal justice reform. Uh, but I found, you know, that it's often, you often need, and I'll just say this, it's probably controversial to some of my Democratic friends, it's, it's harder to get Democrats to support it up front um, because they're scared about what the response is going to be from their opponents on the right. So it's only, it seems to be like, you know, they will only do it when, when the right is willing to go along and um, of course, we know the other side has used it as a as, as a fear mongering tactic. So um, how do you navigate the politics of this in a way that to make people understand the common humanity? And uh, how do you just not get frustrated? Because I, I look at this and I get frustrated from both sides on this for the reasons I just stated. Yeah, I, that, that frustrates me, too, that uh, politics comes into this way too much. And you've got uh, often you've got folks on the political left who are afraid to to, to be uh, outspoken, certainly elected officials. I'm not talking about the, the That's the what base. I'm talking about. Yeah, 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 elected officials, not the base. And um, but 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 the way that we have dealt with this at OJPC, and we've been really effective at working across the political spectrum. I mean, we're a non-profit, uh, non-partisan uh, office. We we all have individually have our political views, but um, yeah. we've done a good job of reaching out to people who. Uh, are maybe hold different political views than yeah. uh, we do individually and getting stuff done. I mean, Tyra Patterson's uh, case, and she, she um, is the actually innocent person that we w- were able to build a campaign to get released. Uh, we spent five years uh, working to free Tyra uh, after she had served 23 years for something she didn't do. And we were able to build this campaign to, to, to get Governor Kasich to, to care by reaching out to people that I disagree with vehemently on politics, like Joe Dieters, um, right. who wasn't the prosecutor on her case. This is a case out of Montgomery County, it was Tyra's, not not Hamilton County, where Joe is the prosecutor. 
Jane Schmidt, my former congresswoman, um, several others. We were able to, 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 to build a coalition of people who we thought the governor would be more apt to listen to. And we've done the same thing in our policy work at OJPC in terms of you know, working with uh, Representative uh, Bill Sykes, um, who is a lion in the Republican Party, uh, who's been a legislator for a number of years, but has he, he really, I think, gets the, 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 the need to reform the criminal legal system and, and others like Bill. And of course, we work with our allies um, in the Democratic Party as well. But my point is, is that you just got to do it. You've got to reach across the political spectrum and make your case. And, 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 and it's helpful to, when we're making the case, to expose elected officials to directly impacted people, people yeah. who we are trying to help, because that's where you open eyes and open uh, minds and hearts um, as well. Uh, so Congress, so Congress has just passed a $2.2 trillion uh, relief package for, for small businesses, large businesses, and um, also for unemployment for individuals. So let's take you, you're the, you're the president now, and you want to do more to make sure you're helping uh, vulnerable populations for those who are reuniting with their families and, and, and uh, that are coming from the prison system. And w what, what resources should we be demanding from Congress as they are uh, clearly handing out bills right now? Um, what should be demanded to make sure we can obviously stop the spread and maybe do something about uh, mass incarceration, which is also a huge problem for us in this nation? Well, the federal prison system uh, ought to decarcerate. I mean, that's certainly something I would I would instruct my attorney general to, to, to find every way possible to uh, to reduce the number of people uh, in federal prisons. And, and some good news came out about a week ago where I think the Justice Department is taking a look at that. And I think that, that whatever they're going to do, I would say, needs to be done even more. Um, and I think in terms of, um, I mean, this, this COVID, COVID-19 is just devastating. I, it, I would not want to be the president of the United States um, at this time dealing with this. I think that, that uh, you know, unfortunately, I think there have been uh, some missteps in how the administration um, has handled things in terms of not taking it as seriously um, early as it, as it should have and could have. But I, I think that right now we've got to be um, doing everything we, we can as a country to get the resources that we need to the hospitals that are going to be treating people, because that's going to impact. If I'm if I'm worried about my clients in Ohio prisons not being able to get on a ventilator um, because there's a shortage, I want that fixed. I want there to be right. more ventilators. I want there to be more capacity to uh, you know more hospitals constructed. These these tent hospitals that are coming up. More resources. From FEMA to get things like that happening because you know this this coronavirus just doesn't care it's wreaking havoc yep. and we need more resources going to the medical um, to, to medical community to deal with this devastating illness. Yeah, the Alliance for Safety and Justice, one of our sponsors of the show, uh, they have some uh, they're they're putting some demands behind Congress as they continue to move forward. You know, one of them is 
same as same as uh, the stuff you mentioned about making sure we lower the prison population by as much as possible in order to prevent the spread. It's morally right, but it's also there's a there's an urgency to do it right now. Uh, they also talk about the fact that it's important to give more resources to victims of crime, like folks who have been, you know, domestic violence survivors, folks like that who already uh, are under resourced. And so the counseling, the mental counseling, you know, whatever aid and support that can be given should be given to that, too, because that's really important at this time um, when, when people are dealing with so much. Uh, what's your thought to that? And um, anything else you might consider if you were put a bill together for Congress to say these things need to be funded or these things need to, we already talked about decarceration. Is there some things that sh that should be funded that are not being funded that could also help uh, help us with with our current system, criminal justice system, or just the vulnerable in general? Well, I would say amen to more uh, services, more funding for services to serve um, crime survivors. That's really critical. Uh, and, and that's an important constituency and voice that often gets, um, you know, ignored. Uh, and, and by that, I mean the, the people in the crime survivor community who actually want to see decarceration. Those voices right. in the crime community often get ignored. And, um, and so I would also say this. Uh, I was having an interesting conversation today with um, a... Uh, uh, a, a lawyer who was involved in uh, a class action that we brought years ago, and we were talking about uh, this was a healthcare class action to make sure the prison system provided basic health care. And um, he was the one who actually monitored that case once we came to settlement. And he, similar to what the Alliance for Safety and Justice was saying about more services to people um, who um, are crime survivors, he brought up the very interesting point that I had not thought of, which is that prisoners who are going to be isolated um, in order to uh, to deal with this uh, coronavirus outbreak, they're going to need a whole lot of uh, counseling services as well. And I think we forget that, where, uh, that these folks are going to be victims of this uh, pandemic, just like the rest of us are. It's hard. Uh, on us um, all emotionally. And so we can't ignore those needs that prisoners have as well. Um, and so that's something certainly that I'd want to see happen. No, David, um, you're, you're in an admirable line of work. Uh, it has to be frustrating sometimes, though, to, to, to witness the things you've witnessed. So um, talk about one of the hardest moments you've maybe had in this business, and then um, how you keep going despite the hard moments that you often come across? Um, very interesting that you're asking me that question because I was thinking uh, uh, not too long ago about what's going to sustain us at OJPC as we deal with this moment that we're in with COVID-19. And so I will take you back to June the 5th of 2012, OJPC was fighting to save the life of a man named Abdul Akal who was scheduled to be executed the next day. And the man uh, was so insane that he had no idea why he was being executed and therefore uh, could not be constitutionally executed. And we thought 
that we were going to be able to get the Ohio Supreme Court to stop the execution. And we just didn't get any word. It's the day before the execution. And I get in the car and I drive up to uh, the death house at Lucasville to meet with him to say, look, we're still no word. We're not sure what's happening. We're going to fight um, until every last second to try and keep you alive. When I get the terrible news from the Ohio Supreme Court that they've just denied our stay and that the execution is going to go forward. I've never felt worse in that moment. Uh, I, I This man had become my friend um, over the years of our representing him. And I remember it was a cloudy day. I remember walking into the prison. My, my shoulders were slumped over. I went into the area where his family was because I needed to talk to, to, to them and tell them the bad news. And after uh, I told them the news and they were devastated, I was getting ready to go walk to talk to Mr. Call, and the warden pulled me aside and said, I just heard what you said to the family, but you just need to know that Governor Kasich just called. He's granted a reprieve for two weeks to allow you to get back into court to show that your client's um, too mentally incompetent to be executed. And uh, we just this past um, year celebrated Mr. Call's um seventh year of of being alive since um that that uh fateful time back in june of 2012. so that lesson teaches me that in difficult times we just have to keep going forward none of us knows what uh, the next few weeks and months is going to bring but we have to find a way to stay hopeful even when we thought we were at the end of the rope with Mr. Call. We knew we were going to still work um, all night and until the last second to try and stop the execution. And so we got to have hope. We got to we've got to to, to to believe that the sun is going to come up and that we'll be able to uh, come out of this crisis maybe even stronger. I mean, my hope is that this crisis becomes something that wakes us up to a lot of problems in our country, including mass incarceration, and that it'd be a beautiful thing if, as a result of this crisis, we never had more than 800 people at the Hamilton County Justice Center again, um, that we don't go back to the numbers that, that were before, that we can reduce our prison, state prison system as a result of the crisis and keep it there. So that's the way that I look at hard moments. Hard moments are often opportunities. Amen. Hard moments are often opportunities. I think they're always opportunities. It's just a matter of how you proceed to move forward. If you proceed, we can go into, uh, we can go and become stronger, work together, become more united, or go further down to disunity, to distrusting one another, uh, to seeing each other as the other. My hope is that we go the direction that you're saying, uh, and I will continue to have hope. I, I, I've I have to make sure I've kept myself up in good spirits. Why well, it's good to have you on the show. It's been a really challenging time um, in terms of just the whole political environment and the whole environment in general. But, you know, it's, it, it, it's very important uh, to keep hope and to see the humanity in others, including people you strongly disagree with. So you got to pull yourself back and realize that, you know, people can rise above who they who they are. And the hope is that when, when people see this moment, uh, David, that that we will all become better for it. That is the opportunity in the moment. It's an opportunity for us to reset and to really understand that we all are human and, and, we're, and we're in this together. We're going to either 
pull each other up or tear each other down. That's really, there's really no in between. So uh, I thank you for all of your work. The Alliance for Safety and Justice has a, uh, has, has, a, has a link they want people to sign about how to stop the spread to reduce mass incarceration and to give support to the most vulnerable as Congress is in the midst of trying to deal with this crisis and needs to deal with this crisis across the board, including those who are most vulnerable in order to make sure that we both stop the spread and also work to have a better America and uh, go on to perfect our union. But until next time, uh, we I'm Rob Richardson. I'm glad you uh, listened. If you get a chance, please subscribe. Please uh, listen on YouTube or you can subscribe on anything you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much and see you next time.